Well, once again, everybody, we just wanted to say thanks for hitting play and joining in and watching and listening with us. We're just so thrilled you're here for the second week of Easter, which is such a phenomenal time in the church rhythm and church calendar. I also want to take a second and just say hi to everybody who listens to our podcast week in, week out. We do have a group of people that engage our teachings week in and week out, and we just wanted to say hi to you guys, and thanks for listening, and hopefully you're doing well as you can continue to kind of engage our teaching week to week. Uh, I'm really pumped because it is uh, the, the season of Easter tide in the church calendar. And with that, we're actually going to start a series today, a six-week series called Tide. And that's just taken from Easter Tide, obviously, where we're going to look at some amazing stories of how Jesus shows up to people and basically comes to people after his resurrection and absolutely changes their lives. And this is what the season is actually all about, a, a season of reflection and more than that, really a celebration of Jesus coming defeating sin and death through his death, burial, and his resurrection. And so I hope you can engage with us over the next little while as we look at these stories. And I do, I just really believe God has some stuff for us, even though we're in this really unique moment, obviously in our homes and wherever we are watching this. Now, with that said, uh, every season at Praxis, if you're part of the community, you know that one of the things we have is a particular rhythm. And this really defines who we are. One of the things we don't want to be is just a church where you come and you watch a show. We really actually push against that. And that's not who we want to be at all. We want to be a practicing community. Our vision is to practice the way of Jesus together. So every season, what we do is we give you guys uh, some opportunities to really join in with us. And every season, we have three components that kind of work together. One, we have an outreach. And just to let you know, we do have a spring outreach right now that we're joining in on. And basically taking some dollars from our budget and beyond that people are contributing to help with the different needs that have arisen because of COVID-19 in our city with food distribution and just looking, we're still looking as a team as well and discerning different local things that we can join in and partner with. And so you can give to that and be a part of that, which is amazing. Every season we have an outreach. The other thing is we also have a, a teaching series every season. And again, this season we'll be walking through the lectionary and finishing uh, our series and basically our rhythm through the church calendar. If you don't know, in uh, in December, we started through the church calendar, just taking and doing this once. So we started with Advent and then Epiphany and then into Lent and Easter. It's been amazing all the way through. And here we are into Eastertide, which is the season from Resurrection Sunday all the way to Pentecost Sunday, which is coming and we'll celebrate together. I just want to let you know that we've continued with all that's going on with COVID-19. We've still continued with our commitment to this particular journey through the church calendar. It could have been easy to kind of veer off and maybe do some things more COVID-19 related. And I just have felt that we need to continue on. Obviously, we're not um, ignoring the reality that we're in with this virus and all that's going on, but we've really wanted to remain faithful to what we've set out as far as the church calendar. So we have an outreach, a teaching series, and then every season we give you guys an opportunity to join in on a spiritual practice where you're actually practicing and doing things, practicing the way of Jesus together. And Easter is always an exciting time because usually the Sunday after Resurrection Sunday, what we do is we introduce 
um, the practice of feasting and generosity. So one of the things is the implication of Easter is it gets us to celebrate this outward kind of discipline, this communal discipline of feasting. So we had this vision where we were going to be in homes throughout the city, eating and drinking and celebrating as a church community. And then we also put an emphasis on generosity. Because we're not together, and obviously in these unique circumstances, we're actually going to press pause on those disciplines and wait till we get back together. We don't know when that's going to be. Some think the end of May, as honestly as a church leadership, we just, we have no idea. We're obviously taking government orders and wanting to be as wise as we can. But whenever that is, we will celebrate um, with feasting and generosity. And we do know it's going to be an interesting moment as we get back, just just the whole culture of things. But we can't wait to practice that. With that said, we've been looking at a internal kind of discipline that we could do together and celebrating together. Um, Easter, but not only that, something that we could cultivate in our own lives that we could practice during this time since we're not going to do those other practices. And so I'm really excited because we are going to practice the discipline of study and scripture over the next uh, number of weeks. So over the next six to eight weeks, we're going to join in with that. Now, there's a couple things that we're going to do. One, we're going to give you a little bit of time, but next Sunday morning, we're going to release a Bible reading plan through the Gospels that we're going to read through the gospels together as a church. And so we encourage you to do that. Join in with us. Um, Maybe you want to do it with your family since you're home a bit more in this season and maybe looking for things to do. But our goal is to engage scripture and study it and walk through the gospels together. So that's going to be amazing. I'm super excited about that. The second thing though is if you are a keener, and you're like super into like really digging deep around the Bible and the scriptures, we are offering a course that is going to start on April, Wednesday, April the 29th. It's all going to be online. It's an eight-week course called An Introduction to the Hebrew Bible. And it's going to be amazing for those of you that really want to kind of engage at a deeper level. The Hebrew Bible is the Old Testament. And basically, this is a course that teaches us what the Old Testament is and how to read it, which so many people are actually I think actually interested in and want to engage this. So I'm pretty excited about this. Now, here's the thing. It is not me teaching it. I'm just facilitating it. It will be online. Each week we'll watch some videos together and then have some discussion together. And it's actually led by a brilliant guy named Dr. Tim Mackey. Many of you guys, probably most of you, have seen a Bible Project video at some point in your life. And Tim Mackey actually leads uh, the Bible Project and is kind of the brains behind the Bible Project. And he is offering this kind of beta version of this course, an introduction to the Old Testament. I've looked through it and gone through it. It's it's rad. It's amazing. And I think you should actually join me in uh, kind of going through this. So if you want to join in, go to mypraxis.church slash spiritual dash practice. That's what it is. My practice mypraxis.church slash spiritual dash practice. And you can sign up for that if you want. There's also recommended readings around scripture and some things if you want to do it on your own. But uh, if you want to join me for eight weeks, it's going to be a lot of fun. With that said, let's jump in. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Now, if you don't have a Bible, um, that's okay because you're at home probably. And there are, if you don't know this, there are a ton of free versions of the scriptures online. And as well, there's a lot of apps. So if you just search and Google Bible, there's lots there that will help you if you want to journey and follow along with us. Now, it's interesting. A couple weeks ago, 
my family and I were sitting on a Sunday morning, kind of in this new normal of watching our gatherings online. And so we were sitting in our living room watching the gathering together and we had our coffee in hand and it was just a great morning together as a a family, kind of joining in with our church family. And it was Palm Sunday. So if you don't know, a couple weeks ago was Palm Sunday and we were watching together our liturgy. And Heather turned over to me and she just asked as the animated Bible story was going and Jesus in that story was coming into Jerusalem and they're waving the palm branches and stuff. She turned to me and said, do you think that we would know um, and we would know and acknowledge that Jesus was the son of God if we were in that moment? She basically turned to me and said, like, listen, if we were like first century Jews and we were there in Jerusalem for Passover and we have a particular worldview and a particular way of viewing the world at that moment, and this Galilean rabbi who nobody really knows a whole lot about comes along, would we acknowledge that this guy is the son of God, God in flesh among us? And it was just an interesting conversation. It actually developed further where we got asking, I wonder what it would be like even for today if somebody came along declaring that they were from God. Would we, would we acknowledge that? Like, would we actually embrace that? And you know what my answer was? My answer to her was probably not, right? Probably not. I mean, let's be honest. The majority of people at Passover did not understand what was happening with Jesus coming to embody God's love to us and give himself and take care of death and rise from the dead. Not many people were dialed into this this, this story. I mean, even right down to it, Jesus' own disciples were ones that at times were losing the plot and they were spending time with Jesus day in and day out. And I just think it's important to be honest, you know, even through this discussion that we were having, that I know that I'm prone to missing it and I know that I'm prone to doubt and I think actually that's what's, the, that's what's so beautiful about this story and that's what's so beautiful about the gospel is that this is what the gospel is all about. It's for doubters, it's for doubters like me. And I know that we're now kind of on the other side of history and we have all these things that point to Jesus. But I just thought what an interesting question to be asked in that moment as we watch Jesus come into Jerusalem in animated form. Would I embrace this? I know what my life is like, and I think we need to be honest about that. Now, with that said, we're going to look at a story today of immediately after Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20. And I want to read it to us, and I just want to draw some stuff out for us because I think we need to just talk about what resurrection means, and even deeper, the idea of doubt even after something like the resurrection. So let's read together. Grab your Bibles, John 20, this is what it says. It says this, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of, of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the father has sent me. I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, in the story, the disciples are scared. I mean, so scared of the religious leaders and the people in that moment, um, just all that had gone down during Passion Week. And so the doors are locked. And the beauty of the story is, is that Jesus actually shows up to them and he says, peace be with you. And one of the things that's really unique is he actually invites them to receive the Holy Spirit and kind of gives them this instruction that I'm going to send you to the world. You're going to have my spirit. And amongst all the fear and all the things that you're feeling and anticipating, I'm going to send you in to the world. But it's interesting. Someone is missing. It's so interesting. His name is Thomas or Didymus in the scripture. I think Didymus means twin, if I'm not mistaken. But at any rate, you have Thomas who actually misses out on this. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a group where everyone in the group saw or experienced something, but you missed out. Isn't that the worst? Well, this is Thomas. Thomas wasn't there the first time. Thomas had actually missed out on Jesus showing up to them. And so some of the disciples that were there say to Thomas, they say, yo, like, you got to understand, we have seen the Lord. And basically Thomas's response is, nah, unless I see the nails in that guy's hands and I see the wound in his side, I, I'm not going to believe this. And so it was actually a week later, the text says, we just read it, where Jesus shows up again, the doors are locked. Jesus shows up in the room to Thomas and the rest is history as Jesus shows the wounds in his hands and his side and Thomas begins to believe. That's interesting. If you're a flannel board kid like me from Sunday school, many of you that are watching grew up in the church and you probably know this story pretty well. It's interesting how over time, Thomas has kind of been given a nickname that I'm not sure is necessarily fair. Most of us know Thomas as this guy known as Thomas the Doubter, right? The flannel board always had kind of reminded me of that as a child, that Thomas was this guy that had doubted that Jesus was actually risen from the dead. And, you know, one of the things I think through is, is that actually a fair, is that a fair assumption of Thomas's life? Uh, I'm not sure it is. Actually, if you want to turn, we're going to do a little bit of maneuvering through John here. Just look at a couple different passages. But I'm not sure that's actually a fair assumption of Thomas. Like in John 11, which we actually read a few weeks ago during the season of Lent, um, we get kind of the first interaction of Thomas. We actually hear from him in the story. If you don't re- don't remember, Jesus' really good friend, his name was Lazarus, died. And so Jesus is interacting with the disciples. It actually says in John 11, it says this, verse 14, it says, So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But then Jesus says to his disciples, But let us go to him. Now, it's interesting here because we're going to see the conjured response from Thomas. Look at verse 16. 
Thomas says this, then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. See, Thomas in this moment was actually convinced on Jesus that the revolution that he was bringing probably was going to get him killed and all that was going on, the healings, the miracles, the the subtle declaration that Jesus was the son of God. In this particular moment in John 11, Thomas was a dude who was like courageous. He's like, I'm I am all in on this thing, so much so that if we go and see Lazarus and the way this may unfold, I am willing to die for Jesus in this moment. A little bit of a different picture than what's painted in John 20, where we kind of have this doubting guy. It's a a much different story. Then you flip a few chapters to the right in John 14. Jesus here... Jesus here is speaking to his disciples, and one of the things he's doing is he's basically revealing to them that he's not going to be around forever, and you got to imagine in their minds and hearts what's happening here, because they followed this one who is teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, and they probably think, and we know, that they're going to probably sit at his right and left and establish the rule and reign of God on earth. Maybe some of them are even still thinking that this will be through military power or whatever it is but then Jesus like kind of blows their minds a bit by letting them know like I am not going to be here forever this is what it says in John 14 if you look John 14 verse 1 it says Jesus says do not let your hearts be troubled you believed in God but also believe in me my father's house has many rooms if that were not so would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And then Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, and this is infamous. Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So this is basically Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm not going to be here. But by the way, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And basically, Thomas is the one that speaks up and says, Where, how do we know this way? And Jesus says, listen, I am the way. So John 11, you have the courage of Thomas to follow Jesus in this declaration of I'm going to follow you to death. In John 14, you have what is known as the Thomas question, this infamous question of how do we know your way? How do we know this way? And Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then you get back to the text today in John chapter 20. And here's the thing. Maybe this is a bit of an overreach because it's easy for, pa- we don't have every detail in the, in the gospels, right? So it is easy for pastors and teachers sometimes to, I don't know, try and fill in the blanks a, bit, a little bit. And I know there's a danger with that. And I certainly don't want to be accused of that. But it's interesting in John 20 here and as the story unfolds and what we've read, you know, Thomas, when the disciples were locked in the room the first time Jesus showed up, he wasn't there. And one of the questions is, why wasn't Thomas there? Could it be 
because Thomas wasn't living in fear like some of the other disciples. Now, again, this may, you know, this may just, this is just me. This may not be gospel truth, but I find it interesting that Thomas actually missed out on the first time. And it's explicit that these disciples are living in fear behind locked doors because of what may happen. And then eventually Jesus shows up a second time and there Thomas is. It's just interesting. You know, I know this isn't a popular maybe position with a lot of people, especially for a lot of people that have it all figured out and have their lives together. But I actually think that doubt is actually a part of an authentic journey of following Jesus. I actually think that doubt is part of our story as people who follow Jesus. And I do not think it's a mistake that right after, you got to think with me, right after Jesus has been risen from the dead, that people, those that are close to him, are already starting to doubt him. That this is actually part of the story. And you know, doubt has in many ways, if you just think through our particular story in the Western church, doubt has been extinguished from Western evangelicalism. And I think one of the things that's happened right now is we live in the wake of a church that hasn't embraced doubt very well. I don't know if you know this, but people have walked away from the church in droves. And there's all sorts of studies. And we've even shared, even in the Canadian context, people walking away from God, the gospel, and the church in droves in our country. And I think for many, that the reason for that is, is because there's been no wiggle room to ask questions and to bring our doubts to God. And I just think we all need to think through this. Think about it. If Jesus' closest followers had these particular thoughts and feelings right after his resurrection, don't you think that 2,000 years later, with the chasm that we have between that moment and now, with Jesus actually not here in flesh and blood like he was with his disciples, don't you think that that would lead us to at least a little bit of opportunity to ask some questions and bring our doubts before God? I do. I think if Jesus' own friends are kind of doubting his existence after his death, I think there should be lots of room for us as the church to lean into this story at this time, which is filled obviously with hope that Jesus shows up, but that also there'd be room in our lives to bring our questions and our doubts. Now, here's the thing. We have in the West, and I don't mean to be so hard on the Western church and the evangelical church, but it's interesting. We have in our moment pinned faith against doubt. You know, Paul Tillich, who's a great theologian, he said this, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. He goes on and says that doubt is not the opposite of faith, it is one element of faith. And I can't agree more. I'm actually more weary of Christians who are certain about everything and have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed than I am about followers of Jesus who have doubts. Because certainty, I've just seen over the years, especially as a pastor guy, certainty can be very, very dangerous. Here's a simple way to think about it. When we think about doubt and faith and all that's going on here, you know, in a broken world, sadness, things like sadness and sickness are inevitable. You can't escape it. And those of you that are watching, you know that. You know that this is part of the story of humans, Jesus follower or not. And so much of this idea of sickness and sadness 
in our life story is out of our control. There's some things that are in our control, certainly, but much of what we experience in this brokenness is out of our control. And I'll just say this, it's actually the same with doubt. We can't control whether we're going to have doubts. But the thing is, like Thomas, we could maybe let, we could actually, not maybe, we could let God meet us in our doubts. It's interesting in this particular story that God through Jesus enters in and he enters into the story and he meets Thomas right in the middle of his doubt. This is what the story is all about. Uh, a great guy, uh, his name's Austin Fisher. He's wrote a book that we're actually at the very end of our gathering this morning. We're going to have some recommended readings if you want to read more about this because I know this idea of faith and doubt kind of pushes on a lot of people. You, I, I just talked to people in our own community. Many people are just wrestling through some of the doubts that they have. He says this, he said, doubt makes people abandon faith. But people don't abandon faith because they have doubts. People abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. Now, I absolutely love this quote, and I think it's so true. And, you know, as I heard this quote this week, I got thinking about our own community and even my own kids and their own faith journey down the road. You know, one of the things I hope is that we could cultivate a culture in our church and in our community where people could bring their doubts and their fear and their pain to the community and we could walk through these kinds of things together. You know, again, as Austin Fisher has said here, a lot of times there's not room and then what happens is people have these significant faith crises that affects not only themselves but a lot of people. And I often think about our own church. What if we could be a community that embraces doubt and my own kids could grow up and have their own deconstruction and wrestle through what they're learning and growing in and yet there wouldn't be as much of a a, a faith crisis because they're in a community and a place and space where they're allowed to wrestle through these things my prayer deep down inside even as i heard that quote as i've come to this particular text again is that again we would cultivate a space in our own lives where we don't have to have these crises moments because there's an openness to be walking through these things even from when kids are young. It's pretty cool right now. Our own community, our youth group is actually walking through Alpha online through Zoom. And, uh, you know, we can't be together, but they're walking through these questions about faith and life and God. And it's just been cool. I haven't been there for the whole time, but just to even peek over the shoulder and listen over the shoulder and hear some of the things that our own students are, are going through and wrestling through. We need to create space for that now so we don't have these significant crises moments 10 years from now or down the road that we're, we're open to this just like a disciple, a friend of Jesus, Thomas had his own doubts. We could be people that live in the same way. Now, here's the thing, and I hope you're hanging with me. I do want to remind us that there is a difference between doubt and cynicism. You know, I was thinking this week, it's so interesting to be on the other side of a lot of the technologies that had kind of spurred on questions and doubts in the church over the last decade or so. So like in the 2000s, I think we can call them the 2000s now. It's far enough away now that we're in 2020 or whatever. Um, In the 2000s, technology put everybody's and I'll put in quotes here, opinions about the church and the Bible into the free market. 
And, you know, the blog and podcast boom that happened in the 2000s gave voice to a lot of people who began to deconstruct faith and deconstruct the Bible and church. And honestly, in many ways, rightfully so, there are a ton, a lot of conservative Christian kids in our own community, many of you that are probably watching, that were force-fed certain ideas about God and the Bible that were not even really true. And you've come to know this over time. You know, I hate to break it to you if you're watching and you're not convinced on this, but there are some things that the Western Evangelical Church got a hold of and kind of hijacked and made distinctives. And there are things that they, the, the Western church has kind of leaned into and grabbed onto that don't even really hold consensus in the church worldwide. There's certain things in evangelicalism that the church has kind of taken as necessary. And so a lot of kids, a lot of conservative kids have gone through their moment of deconstructing those certain worldviews and ideas. And the thing is, through this kind of techno- technological revolution that really influenced the church, these particular voices were out there deconstructing the foundation of a lot of people's faiths. And, you know, I was one of them that, you know, I'm a reader, I'm a listener, I read a lot and listen to a lot of stuff and tend to be more of a thinker than anything. And so I've been engaged in this over the years. But it's interesting, you know, as time has progressed now, and here we are in 2020 stuck in our homes, as time has progressed, I actually think we're in a moment where we can deconstruct the deconstruction that has taken place over the last decade or so. I think we're in a prime moment, now that technology is more of a normal thing, to actually deconstruct the deconstruction that has kind of evolved in the church the last decade. You know, one of the questions that comes up in my mind is where has this deconstruction actually, where has it led us? After all all we've engaged in, if you've been around the church for the last couple of decades, like where, where are we and what has this actually done for us? You know, the fact is for many, because some guy and his bros started a podcast in their mom's basement about their, you know, their doubts about God and the church or the mommy blogger who writes about walking away from faith. A lot of people, and I know a lot of people, have been thrust down the road of cynicism, what I would call terminal deconstruction. And I just want to remind us that there's actually a difference between what we see happening here in the text and what true doubt is in comparison to cynicism. There is a difference between doubt and cynicism. Doubt, as we've been learning, is uncertainty. And uncertainty is okay. None of us are certain about every little thing. But cynicism, on the other hand, I mean, this is actually the definition from the dictionary of cynicism. It says that cynicism is an inclination to believe that people are motivated purely by self-interest, an attitude characterized by general distrust of others' motives. And let me just say that this is actually how a lot of people have come to feel about God and the church and Christians. And this kind of cynicism, you know, this this attitude characterized by a general distrust of others, you know, cynicism is different than doubt, way different than what we understand as doubt. I would say that God welcomes our doubt. He welcomes our questions. I I always say that God is not shaking in his metaphorical boots about our doubt and our questions and the things that are wrestling through our mind. 
But I've also seen that cynicism, it's different than doubt, and cynicism is toxic. It's deadly. I've seen the carnage of cynicism all around me, and I would imagine if you've been around the church a while, you would too. People think they're doubting, but in reality, it's not doubt. It's cynicism. And again, there's a difference. Now, let's get back to the words of Jesus, because I think this is important just as we close. I hope you're leaning in with me a bit. You know, with Jesus, even in our doubts, Jesus is inviting us to trust him. So this was the call to Thomas. And this is actually the call for us many, many years later to trust Jesus. You know, it's interesting, this word faith right now, a lot of people don't have a true and kind of robust understanding of what faith actually is. For a lot of people, faith is kind of this blind walking where you're just kind of walking and you're kind of stepping out. You think of the song Oceans where you're stepping out onto the water and though that's a wonderful song. I'm not sure that faith is like this blind walk. Actually, in the New Testament, the word faith is a translation from the word pistis in Greek. And this word pistis simply means trust or loyalty. If you were to give pistis to a king, you would give your loyalty to a king in first century culture. And the New Testament actually uses this word now with Jesus, that faith is giving our loyalty or our allegiance over to him. And so we don't have everything figured out, but Jesus is actually inviting us to trust him with our lives. He may not be here with us physically like he was with Thomas in that upper room and in that room. And we may not be able to look directly into him physically, into his hands that were pierced, into his side that was torn up. But he is inviting us to trust him, to trust his word, not just what other people say about his word, but for ourselves to actually, for you and I to actually, to peer into the the scriptures and look at what the word actually says about the word of God, who is Jesus. You know, it's interesting that John, uh, just a few verses later, finishes his gospel. So this is right at the end of the gospel of John. He finishes finishes his gospel by saying this. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So he's basically saying there's other things that happened that we weren't able to record in this book, but then listen to what he says, verse 31. But these things are written that you may believe and give allegiance that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So part of this trust is to lean into what's been written about Jesus, the Messiah, and to trust And I think the other way to trust is to simply trust the story that has been passed on by millions and millions of people. You know, we are in a long line, you and I, if you find yourself doubting at times, you and I are in a long line of doubters and people who have struggled to put all the pieces together. You're not alone. There's many people, church fathers, church mothers that have gone before us, yet These people have passed the story of Jesus onward and onward from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And Jesus is longing for us to trust his word, but he's also longing for us to trust this story that has been passed along, to lean in and to trust him with our lives, giving our allegiance to him and what has been passed on. Lots of room to doubt, lots of room to not have everything together but to trust him nonetheless. 
Now, I'll, let's, let's kind of close here with the words that Jesus leaves Thomas. Jesus says to Thomas this, because you have seen me, you've believed. It took Thomas to see Jesus to believe him. But listen to the promise. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So Jesus says here, Thomas, Thomas saw. But for those of you who have not seen the risen Jesus, like in body, which I think is probably most of us, right? Like there's not too many wandering rabbis from Galilee right now walking around during COVID. I mean, we're all staying home anyways. No, nor do we have a wandering rabbi from Galilee coming to our gatherings on Sundays. We do have some sweet beards, but when we're together, I've never seen uh, Jesus of Nazareth physically in our gathering. And yet, Thomas saw, but if we're these people that haven't seen Jesus and believe, Jesus says, you're the ones that are blessed. Guys, you and I, to embrace this, to trust this, amongst all our doubts, amongst not having all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. Remember, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's certainty that's the opposite of faith. In, in and amongst the faith that God is cultivating within us, there is lots of room for doubt. And for those of us that haven't seen the risen Messiah in flesh and blood, but we believe, we give this trust over, we are blessed. And I would encourage all of us, in light of the resurrection, to bring your doubts, do it. Bring your doubts to God and your fears. Bring your questions, bring your complaints, bring your misunderstandings, bring your hopes and your dreams and your desires. My encouragement this morning would be to bring it all to God. He is waiting for us. And let's be honest, if one of the most Closest people, because Jesus' 12 were very close to him. If one of the most closest people on the planet to Jesus had doubts after his resurrection, I think Jesus is okay with us bringing our doubts to him. So my encouragement, again, just bring that to God this morning. If you think there's not room in the church for your questions and your doubts, I just pray that this Easter tide story would be a reminder to us, bring them.